your copy of God's Word, let's turn together to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John chapter 1, our text this morning, verses 14 to 18. As you are turning, I just, on behalf of my family, my wife and I, I just want to thank y'all. You have loved us so well over the last few weeks. Um, with your prayers and your concern, uh, I cannot tell you how much we appreciate it, how grateful we are for you. We ask you to continue to pray for Sarah as we go through coming days and she gets stronger and heads towards chemotherapy. Uh, we are glad to be here with you. Thank you for your love. Um, we are continuing this morning in John's Gospel, and we are continuing each time to come with this question, how does this text point us to faith in Jesus Christ? Because, of course, that's why John's Gospel was written. Uh, the, the theme verse of the entire Gospel, chapter 20, verse 31, these things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, uh, the Son of God, and, and by believing have life in his name. So, so how, how is this? Um, that this particular place is meant to point us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, we're continuing in this prologue. Each of this, the sections of the first 18 verses of John chapter 1 point us to the Word. Um, the Word is the self-expression of God himself. And so, what does the Word do? Who is he? Well, this morning, we're going to see the Word's glory and grace. And indeed, we need to see his glory if we're going to be fully rescued by him and transformed by Jesus himself. In order to see all of this, though, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's pray together. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do bless you for your great kindness to us as your people, that you do not abandon us and leave us to wander about, but you declare your word to us, both in, in the pages of Holy Scripture, but also in the proclamation of the word of God and the preaching of the word of God. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray, come, open our eyes of faith, that we might see, that we might see your glory, that we might see your beauty, your excellency, and might be transformed by it, and by being transformed, enter into a genuine relationship with you through Jesus Christ. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask, we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So, John chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace." For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I was 11 years old when I first saw them. When I first saw the Northern Lights, I was a camper at Deerfoot Lodge, which is a Christian boys camp in upstate New York. And as an 11 year old, I was in a section of the camp called the Point, so named because it was 
built on a piece of land that was a point into Whitaker Lake. Uh, we were just settling down for the night in our cabins, 9.30 or 10 o'clock in the evening when our counselors rousted us out of our beds and said, you have to come, you have to see this. And so we all went out onto the very tip of the point and we looked north toward the Dug Mountains, these two mountains that, that were in the northern edge of Whitaker Lake, and we saw them. The sky was all green and, and purples, even though it was pitch dark. The sky was lighted up. There were yellow-green streaks in the sky, almost like rays or, or curtains of light from the, from the stars down to the mountains, and all reflected in the lake. It was lights bouncing everywhere. It was just so stunning to see in the reflection of the lake and in the sky and the stars and everything falling and everything communicating. Honestly, those northern lights that I saw almost 40 years ago, over 40 years ago, they were simply the most beautiful and excellent and glorious thing I think I've ever seen. And, in, and yet, as beautiful as those northern lights were, what the Apostle John is telling us here is those northern lights pale in comparison to the beauty and excellency and glory of Jesus Christ. And, and yet, it's even more. Because Jesus actually wants us to see his beauty. He wants us to see his excellency. He wants us to see his glory. He actually prayed about that. He actually prayed that you and I, here in 2021, 2,000 years after he lived and died and was buried and was raised from the dead and ascended to the Father, he prayed that you and I now would see his glory. Later in John's Gospel, we'll hear him pray these words in John 17, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you live, loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus prayed that you would see his glory, his beauty, his excellency. But here's the thing. He doesn't want you simply to see that when you die and go to heaven. And he doesn't simply want you to see his glory when he comes again and raises you from the dead and gives you a new body so that you're able to see his full glory. No, Jesus wants you to see his glory now. In the same way that the apostles saw his glory. So Jesus wants you to see his glory now. In fact, if you don't see his glory now, there is a good chance you won't see his glory in heaven the great Puritan John Owen observed that no man ought to look for anything in heaven if he is not by faith first had some experience of it in this life. Did you hear him? You shouldn't look to see Jesus' glory, look for Jesus' glory in heaven if you haven't tasted some aspect by faith of his beauty and excellency and glory now. Friend, Jesus wants to, you to know him and to see him as the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. The most excellent and glorious being you could ever know. 
And he wants you to be in relationship with him. That's what he means when he says he wants you to see his glory. Just like John and the other apostles. That's what they tell us, isn't it? Look at verse 14. What do they say? We have seen his glory. How did John and the other apostles see his glory? Why is that their testimony? We have seen his beauty, his excellency, his glory. Well, they didn't see it in thunder and lightning. Didn't see it in hurricanes or tornadoes. Didn't see it in armies and and generals, soldiers, pomp. No, John and the other apostles saw Jesus' glory revealed by a completely different means. What does he say? Look at it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Now, John's words here are important. The word became flesh. He doesn't use other words that might create a misunderstanding. He doesn't say the word became a human form. The word became a human image. Uh, There were ancient heretics in the early church called the Decetics who believed that Jesus didn't actually take on flesh and blood, but rather was a ghost, an apparition who simply appeared. He, He was in the form of a human being, but he wasn't actually a human being. John says, no. No, the word became flesh. That word flesh is a word that emphasizes the human person and creaturely existence, the reality of human frailty and flesh and blood. He took on your flesh and bones. The word was in the world. He was in flesh. God's self-expression, the one who is identical with God and yet distinct from God, he took on flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. He dwelt among us. He didn't say remove from us, but rather he came right in into the midst of his own creation, into the midst of other human persons to be known by them and felt by them, hugged, touched. They were able to see him eat and drink. He slept. He moved into our neighborhood. He dwelt among us. And in dwelling among us, God used his freedom to be for us and with us and to be for us and with us so that we might be in in relationship with him, that we might know him. Of course, that's always been the promise of the Bible. Think back to the very beginning when God creates the heavens and the earth and he creates this world and he creates a a kind of wilderness and in the midst of the wilderness, he he creates a garden and he puts Adam and Eve in that garden and he gives them a task. They're to extend the boundaries of the garden as his image bears, so that the glory of God would fill the earth. But in that garden, what did God do? As Adam and Eve were there, Genesis 3 tells us he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. God came and dwelt in the midst of his people and walked in their midst. Of course, Adam and Eve sinned. They're pushed outside of the garden. But God does not give up on the ideal of dwelling in the midst of his people. After he rescues his people in the exodus, brings them into the wilderness, what does he tell them to do? He tells them to build a tabernacle. He says, let them make me a sanctuary. Why? Exodus 25 verse 8. That I may dwell in their midst. And so God's people did. 
They bring all of their gifts. They construct this tabernacle. They build it. And what happens when they build the tabernacle and they set it up for the first time? Exodus 40 tells you. God comes, the glory cloud of God, the very presence of God comes and fills that tabernacle. And Israel is, is encamped around the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is in the very center of the camp. And God dwelt in the midst of his people. His glory was seen and known. God was there. Hundreds of years later, after King David establishes God's people in Zion, and David wants to build God a permanent dwelling place, God says, yes, your son will in fact do it. And God tells Solomon, I will dwell in the midst among the children of Israel. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 13. And so Solomon builds the temple. And when the temple is being dedicated, do you remember what happened? That's right. The glory cloud of God comes and his very presence fills the temple to such a degree that the, temp the temple priests are driven out. They can't see to do their work because God's presence was dwelling there. What is John saying? The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. He is saying that God's glory has been revealed in this word, who's not simply a principle or an idea. He's a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God literally pitched his tent, tabernacled among us, and his glory is seen and known, which means this. If you want to see the glory of God, if you want to know his beauty, if you want to see his excellency, look at Jesus. Because God's glory has a name. His name is Jesus the Messiah. God's glory is revealed in him. But friends, it does little good. It does you little good to know that God's glory has been revealed and revealed in Jesus if that glory is not received. How, how did John and the other apostles receive it? What do they say? They say, we have seen his glory. Now, this, this word for see here is stronger than, a, than looking or a mere glance. No, it has the idea of observing, of perceiving, of recognizing. And it, it's clearly set over against the response of others that we've already seen in this text. Look back at chapter 1, verse 10. You remember? He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The world did not recognize him. The world did not perceive him, did not see who Jesus truly is. Even though he was their creator, their maker, the world, the larger world, and the system it represented did not see Jesus, but neither did God's own people. Neither did the covenant people of God, the Jews, no, they thought he was the illegitimate son of Joseph. They thought he was from a town called Nazareth. What, what good thing has ever come out of Nazareth? They thought he was a, a teacher, a troublemaker, someone to be eliminated. In that holy week, what did they cry out concerning Jesus? Not bow the knee to him, but crucify him. Crucify him. The world did not see him. His own covenant people did not see him, but John said, what? We have seen his glory. We have seen his glory as the son of the living God. 
Or as he puts it here, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, John and the other apostles, they saw his glory and received his glory as who he actually was. Not as a teacher, not as a prophet, not as a healer, not as a political zealot, as the very Son of God. As the only Son from the Father. As the one who is in fact very God, very God of very God, light of light, the only begotten of the Father, begotten not made. Everything you've confessed this morning, that's how the apostles saw him. That's how they came to know him. But friend, that's not just some kind of ancient history. That's actually the call of the text for you today. Have you seen Jesus have you known him? Are you able to confess with these men that, that Jesus has the words of eternal life and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God? Is that your confession? Can you stand up this morning and say, yes, I've seen his beauty. I've seen his excellency. I've seen his glory. My heart has gone out towards him in trust and in faith. I am resting upon him and relying upon him. I have received him. I believe in him. Have you seen his glory? How do you know if you've seen his glory? What changes you? What you look at? What you focus on? What you worship? It makes you into that. What you behold is what you become. If you behold money and that is your focus, then every, every relationship has an economic reality. Everything is, is evaluated in the light of, of gold and silver and precious coins. And you become as cold and as hard as that money you worship because you become like what you behold. If your focus is on your desires, whether sexual desires or desire for acquisition or whatever it may be, as everything then becomes a, a desire game. What can I get? How might it satisfy me? How does it scratch my itch? Because you become... Like what you behold. Or if all that you focus on is power, so that that becomes your chief end in life, you want to be in control, you want to have power. Every relationship, every, every aspect of your life is evaluated in the light of whether you're in charge, whether you're in control, whether your way is met, whether you can somehow accomplish your end because you become like what you behold. But friend, if you have seen his glory... If you have looked at Jesus by faith and you say, I am trusting you and I am resting in you, then you will become like what you behold. That's what the Apostle Paul said. He said, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Have you seen him? Have you seen Jesus and his beauty and his excellency and his glory so that it changes everything about you what you love what you desire how you arrange your time how you spend your money how you parent how you work how you worship have you seen him friend this this seeing is not in your power no it's it's something that actually comes to us by grace Grace. That's what John's telling us here. 
Four times he uses this word grace, twice in a pair, grace and truth. Another time, grace upon grace. God's undeserved, uncoerced favor comes to us. How? John tells us through Jesus, through the word become flesh. But, but in order to grasp fully how God's grace comes to us through Jesus alone, the Apostle John actually takes us to the past and shows us how God is provided by his grace in the past. Look at verse 16. He says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, does that strike you as odd? Like, why, why bring up Moses here? What is, what is John doing? We might be tempted to read this as though John is putting these two forward as opposites, as though he's saying Moses and law, bad. Jesus and grace, good. But, but I don't think that's actually what John is doing here. Rather, he's telling us that, that a marker of God's grace and a manifestation of God's glory in the past was seen through Moses in, in the giving of the law. And of course, you might remember when when God gave Moses the law, what was there? There was tremendous glory. There was thunder. There was lightning. There was a voice that shook the earth. There was the glory cloud that came down on Mount Sinai and caused the people to fear. And so the giving of the law was, was an evidence of God's glory. But also in the giving of the law, you see its glory and what it was meant to do. Its grace and what it was meant to do course there's all sorts of stipulations and requirements in the mosaic law but the law's main purpose was actually to point to jesus and so the law was a gracious instrument a gracious tool meant to point us to the grace of god coming in jesus christ jesus himself tells us this in john's gospel we'll see it in john chapter 5 verse 46 jesus said if you believed moses you would believe me for he wrote of me but if you do not believe his writings how will you believe my words and so Moses wrote of Jesus there in the Old Testament law grace upon grace was meant to point God's people through the generations to look for this word became flesh the one who would dwell among his people the one who would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the one who would be the ladder connecting heaven and earth, the one who would be the perfect host of the feast, and so many other images aside we're going to see in John's Gospel. The Old Testament should have prepared them for that. It was a gracious tool that God used to declare through Moses to prepare his people for grace in the present. Because the fullness of God's grace comes to us through Jesus the Messiah. After all, what we have in Moses are shadows. But what we have in Jesus is the son of righteousness who's risen with healing in his wings. What we have in Moses are promises. But what we have in Jesus are the fulfillment of those promises. Promises kept, promises realized. What we have in Moses is expectation. But what we have in Jesus is our hopes fulfilled. That's why grace in the past was meant to prepare God's people for grace in the present. Because, friends, this grace we receive in the present, it's not a substance. It's not a principle. Grace is not an aspiration. It's not a 
It's not a theological idea per se. It's not a worldview. Friend, grace is a person, and that person has a name. When we talk about God's grace, we're talking about Jesus. That's what John says. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, we, we might be tempted to take that, that pair, grace and truth, and, and set them in opposition pit them against each other as though someone can have grace without truth or truth without grace. I once had a man in one of my churches come to me and say, are you a grace Christian or a truth Christian? No. That's completely the wrong question. You can't have grace apart from truth. You can't have truth apart from grace. They both come not as an idea, not as an aspiration. They come in this person whose name is Jesus. Grace and truth are personal we come to know them as a reality through seeing and savoring Jesus as our Messiah. Jesus is our Savior, the saving one, the one who came to seek and save you and me. Yet we can never forget this Jesus, who is, who is grace and truth. He's only able to show us his glory. He's only able to grant us his favor, his grace, because he is the only God is at the Father's side. That's what John says in verse 18. He says, no one has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That language there, who is at the Father's side, it actually has the idea of who is in the bosom of the Father, who's on the most intimate terms with the Father, because of course he's the Word. He's the one who is with God. The one is God. Verse 18 serves as a bookend to verse 1, telling you who this Word, who this Jesus is is he's able to show us grace he's able to show us his glory because this jesus whom you are, have trusted is in fact god and so i ask you the question again have you seen him with eyes of faith have you seen jesus have you seen his beauty his excellency his glory have you seen that glory in such a way that, that, that everything else in your life takes second place? Have you seen that glory so that, so that not only in the sunshine days, the fair days, but on the dark and stormy days of your life, where it seems as though the world is giving away, that that, that glory is able to satisfy your heart in some small way? It doesn't mean you're not afraid. Doesn't, doesn't mean you're not anxious, but, but you're running to Jesus Christ because you've seen his glory in the past and you desire his glory in the present. And whether you live or whether you die, your great hope and expectation is to see him. Is that you? Is that you? I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon the Puritan John Owen. He's sometimes called the Prince of the Puritans. One of the greatest Puritan theologians, a 17th century figure. He was the one who preached to Parliament the day after Charles I was batted. He was Vice Chancellor of Oxford University on close, intimate terms with Oliver Cromwell. His collected writings take up 23 volumes of extremely small print. He was prolific. As he was dying in the 1680s, he wanted to write one last book. He actually wrote it for himself, for his own personal meditation. It was actually published posthumously. Do you know what he wrote about when he was dying? He wrote about the glory of Christ. And he said this, In this duty of beholding the glory of Christ by faith, I desire to live 
and to die. On Christ's glory, I would fix all my thoughts and desires. And the more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes and I will become more and more crucified to this world. Can you say that? In this duty of beholding the glory of Christ by faith, I desire to live and to die. Can you say that? That I want to see his glory. Though he slay me, I want to see his glory. Can you say that? Will you say with the hymn writer, turn my eyes upon Jesus? Let me look full in his wonderful face that the things of earth may grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Will you turn your eyes upon Jesus this morning? Please pray with me. Almighty God, grant us grace not to mess around this morning. These are eternal things, and eternity is pressing in on us every second. We get so caught up on all the things we want to argue about, fuss and fight about, get frustrated with one another about. Lord, please, this is the main thing. Whether we have seen your glory and your excellency and whether our eyes are fixed on you. Lord, I pray for me. I pray for my friends. Grant us grace to look you full in the face by faith. To put our whole trust in you. To see your beauty and excellency and glory. So that we might be found in that last day dressed in your righteousness, yes. That we might have this solid rock that holds us up in times of difficulty. Lord, please meet us this morning, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us respond to God's word by taking our hymn.